So this evening I'd like to talk about um, a mental quality, the presence or absence of which plays a huge part in determining the degree of happiness that we experience in our lives and the progress that we make on the path to awakening. Indeed, you could say that the, the cultivation and maturing of this quality is the central practical aim and intention of this path and of this practice that we're doing. And this is the quality of equanimity. And its importance in the Buddha's teachings is, I think, evident by its place in so many of the key lists that map out these teachings and and practices. You know, equanimity is is the fourth of the four Brahma-viharas, as they're called, these sublime states of, of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity that we've been speaking about a bit today at the question time. It's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening, what uh, Christina described as the family of mindfulness. It's the fourth of the four jhanas, the, the concentration states. It's the tenth of the tenth paramis, the perfections of the Buddha. And I could go on. And, and <laughs> isn't it interesting that, that it occurs as the last of each of these lists? And I think this points to the fact that, that this is a faculty of mind that in its mature development, in its fullest development, is really what one, one of the maps calls the highest mundane state. The only higher state being the, the transcendent state of Nibbana. So this is, you know, this is a very um, profound and portal state in terms of this practice. A portal to full freedom, the full freedom that uh, the word Nibbana points to. And there are two Pali words that are translated as equanimity. One of them is, is the word upeka, which is, I don't want to blast you with lots of Pali this evening, but it's, it's U-P-E-K-K-H-A. Uh, and that means, in its origins, it means looking on or looking over. Or in some contexts, it means looking on with patience and with understanding. So you can sense the relevance of that of that meaning, and the other is a is a longer word that I won't won't try to spell, which is tatra maja tata, which means there in the middle standing, there in the middle standing, or there in all this standing. 
Do you get the sense of those two words? If we sort of hold them together, looking on, looking over, and standing in the middle, there in the middleness. Uh, and, you know, some Pali, the, the English translations of some Pali terms are, 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 are really not quite adequate to give the meaning of, of those words. But I think in this case, the word equanimity is actually a really, a really useful translation. It's, it's actually quite an old English word. It's not a word that we use very much these days, except in Buddhist circles. Uh, and and uh, it, its origins suggest even-mindedness, impartiality, the capacity to be undisturbed by good or ill fortune, a quality of balance, quality of non-reactivity. And when I describe this, you know, you may be thinking, golly, well, this all sounds really exalted and unattainable. It's nowhere, you know, near my experience. But, you know, we all know this. We wouldn't have got through these days of retreat if we didn't all have some considerable degree of equanimity that enables us to be patient with the wandering mind, the uncomfortable knee, the, the, the hot and the cold, the, uh, the experiences that are difficult to be with. You know, this is, this is a state that we, that we know. This is a state that we know. Yes, in, in, in its uh, maturest forms, it is, as the Buddha described, abundant, exalted, and immeasurable and unshakable. But it's not alien to us. You know, any of us who are in relationships with people, as we all are, in relationships with our own bodies and minds, we know the quality of equanimity. And really, the practice is is to to recognize it, to honor it, and to cultivate it. Recognizing that there's a spectrum here. Of, of a little equanimity and also the possibility of a great equanimity. And you may be thinking, as some people do about equanimity, well, I'm not even sure that I particularly want to cultivate this. You know, what, what it can sort of suggest a certain um, sort of emotional blankness, you know, with about a much... Emotionality is the stone Buddha there, you know, looking equanimous but not feeling anything. Or, or, or a certain sort of colourless quality, like, like one of those, those paint catalogues that has sort of 30 different whites in it, each of a slightly different shade, you know. And that's going to be what my experience is going to be when I become equanimous. But actually, if, if, if you look at your experience, of, we look at our experience of the last few days and think, how did it feel in your most balanced moments? The moments where, to some extent at least, the reactivity of the mind calmed down a bit. where the, the sort of heart eased a bit. How did that feel? 
aren't those the moments where a sense of peace and a sense of love and a sense of joy and a sense of the richness of things actually feels most accessible. Sometimes there are our most precious moments on retreat and in life when the mind just feels more balanced and open and there's just more sense of possibility and connection. And we can really see why the Buddha described this quality of equanimity or balance as having a certain abundance to it. He spoke about the highest happiness being peace. And that equanimity is, is the portal to that peace. And so this evening I'd like really just to, to offer just some reflections about the practice of equanimity in three, three different areas or three distinct areas. And, and the first of these is, um, is in the midst of the challenges of daily life. And some of you may know this. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can relax without liquor. If you can sleep without the aids of, aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> You know, no, no human life is, is exempt from difficulty, is it? And, and uh, you know, in, in, our, in our most painful moments, we can sometimes take that very personally. And yet, you know, what we've been reflecting on over these days and, and these teachings really invite us to, to reflect on is, is that this is actually the way life is. It's not that we're doing something wrong. And this is, this is the first noble truth. And, and one of the ways the Buddha expressed this was talking in terms of eight worldly winds or worldly conditions, worldly changes that, that blow through every human life. And these are, are the winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame or good reputation and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. 
Does anybody not experience all of those at times? And of course, we tend to want the first of those pairs, don't we, and not want the second. And, and wind, winds are a good metaphor, aren't they? Because it sort of highlights how these sort of forces sweep through our lives in ways that are unpredictable and not of our choosing, that blow us about, that seem often unreasonable and indiscriminate, and also impersonal in a certain way. And we can really you know, feel buffeted by these winds, can't we? We can really feel buffeted by them. And yet, when we look closely, when we look really closely, we start to see that what actually blows us about, as much as anything, is our reactivity to these experiences. You know, we can see that it's the degree of reactivity that we have to pleasant and unpleasant experiences that that creates this sense of being blown about and, and, and sort of crashing into the waves of our life rather than riding them. And so if we think about you know, each of these pairs, you know, gain and loss, you know, our, our first thought when we hear that may be to think in terms of material terms or, or financial terms, and certainly in a time of recession, you know, we know what, those winds are like. But we can also see that the experience of gain and loss is one that we have in any situation where there's a sense of investment or identification or ownership. You know, think of football or politics. Think of think of all the identities that we have and that we get attached to. You know, on a a meditation retreat, we can have that sense of, you know, having a sitting that just feels really easeful. The mind just has calmed down. Uh, And there's a sense of pleasure in the practice and we think, "Mm, you know, I've got it. I've got it. You know, I can really do this. I'm going to give up my job and, you know, come and, you know, and all these plans because the pleasure of it is so nice and we look for how can I extend it. And the next sitting, you know, our knee is aching, our mind is all over the place, we're feeling, you know, irritable with the person who's breathing loudly next door to us, you know, and we think, you know, where's the taxi number, you know. Uh, and, and actually, you know, the sense of gain and loss, the mind just attaches to to, to a sense of pleasure and there's a sense of gain. And then what happens? Things change as they do and there's a sense of loss. And, and of course, at a more profound level, you know, if we, and we were reflecting again a little earlier, you know, about health, our health or relationships, you know, the, the, the deaths of, of loved ones, and really see how you know, the dance of gain and loss moves through every life, inevitably. And there's no judgment in that. It's the way that life is. It's the way the wind blows. 
And we can ask ourselves the question, well, what intensifies it and what softens it? And we can see that the more there is a sense of ownership and a sense of my and an attachment to how I think things should be, the more vulnerable I am to that wind. Joseph Goldstein has a little, what he calls a Vipassana mantra, which is that anything can happen at any time. Uh, And as he says, that's not meant to make us sort of paranoid, but actually just to reflect that these changes of gain and loss happen all the time. Here's a story that some of you may know from, it's an old story from the Taoist tradition. A man named Si Wang owned a beautiful mare, a female horse, which was praised far and wide. One day, this beautiful horse disappeared. The people of his village offered sympathy to Si Wang for his great misfortune. Si Wang simply said, that's the way it is. A few days later, the lost mare returned followed by a beautiful wild stallion. The villagers congratulated Si Wang for his good fortune. He said, that's the way it is. Sometime later, Si Wang's only son, while riding the stallion, fell off and broke his leg. The village people once again expressed their sympathy at Si Wang's misfortune. He again said, that's the way it is. Soon after, war broke out, and all the young men of the village, except Si Wang's lame son, were drafted and were killed in battle. The village people were amazed at at Si Wang's good luck. His son was the only young man left alive in the village. But Si Wang kept his same attitude, despite all the turmoil, gains and losses, he gave the same reply. That's the way it is, And, and in some versions of the story it's translated as why are you so sure this is good fortune or why are you so sure this is bad fortune and I wonder what's your equivalent you know what what's the equivalent of that story in your life and just to in a sense, explore the possibility that we can hold these gains and losses with more equanimity, the more deeply we can recognize this as the nature of life, the way life is. And the same, of course, with the cycles of approval and disapproval, you know, Praise and blame, uh, and the more generalized forms of that, you know, fame and disrepute, or good reputation and, and uh, you know, bad reputation, if you like. <coughs> and to see, you know, it's, it's impossible to live in a family, you know, to, to be a parent, to work in a community, to be a therapist, to be a mindfulness teacher you know, to have any sort of leadership role without experiencing 
the approval and the disapproval of others. And the Buddha was very um, candid about this. You know, he said, people find fault in someone who sits silently. People find fault in someone who speaks a lot. People find fault in someone who speaks moderately. Everyone in this world is at some time regarded as being at fault. There never has been or never will be anyone who is only criticized or only praised. And as we know, the Buddha himself was criticized. His, co- his cousin tried to kill him. You know. Uh, and you know, this can be a, a reassurance to us when we are encountering the winds of praise and blame. And of course, there are times when we're blamed and we can see that our actions have contributed to this, that, that in some way they've been unskillful and that actually there are important things that we can learn from the feedback. But the more we're bringing you know, mindfulness into our speech and our actions and the more we're cultivating a deep commitment to ethics in our actions and intentions, the more that we can see that praise and blame and fame and disrepute, if you're going to use those words, principally exist in the perceptions of others. You know, they change like the wind. They're not something we can control. You know, and this can help us to be less reactive, more equanimous with the changing winds of praise and blame. There's another saying from the Buddha, he said, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage or a wise woman, a wise man, is not moved by praise and blame. I find that a helpful image, the sense of the rock. You know, we can sort of, almost like the mountain meditation in MBSR, you know, that sense of cultivating that steadiness in the face of the winds of praise and blame. And the last of the, the two pairs, the, the, the pair of, um, the last of the pairs, the, the pair of um, pleasure and pain. Of course, this is the most fundamental and the one that underlies all the others and as we've been reflecting in our uh, practice with Vedana you know that we have a, a deep biological conditioning to grasp after what's pleasant and to want to push away what's unpleasant but as Christina said this afternoon you know this is an evolutionary impulse that can be really unhelpful when it comes to working with our own experience uh, with mindfulness. Um, The uh, contemporary uh, meditation, Burmese meditation master U Tejaneya said this, uh, you have in practice to watch and accept both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You want only pleasant experiences. You don't even want the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is that reasonable? Is that the way of the Dharma? Yeah? And, and, and we can see that, 
that, you know, it's our reactivity, particularly to unpleasant experience, that lies at the root of the experience of dukkha that Christina spoke about last night. It's what creates the second arrow. It, it's, it's that moment, as we were saying yesterday, this, this moment of the genesis of our, of our dramas and our thought storms. And it lies at the root of really the full range of mental health disorders that we can find ourselves in. And so, you know, in the understanding that's come from MBCT about what triggers relapse uh, in depression, seeing how it's, it's about this automatic reaction to the unpleasantness of ordinary low mood. Does that make sense? Can you feel that? The sense of the unpleasantness of ordinary low mood or, or ordinary difficult experience triggers this reactivity and this evolutionary impulse to try to get rid of it. And we do that by trying to suppress the feelings and by the fix-it mind that tries to get in and sort it out, to eliminate it by thinking about it. It's this, this overthinking that we call rumination. Uh, and the beautiful clarity of, of, of the description in, in MBCT of how this works, you know, that sense of the overthinking that's trying to get rid of the sense of threat that low mood or, or a difficult thought presents. Uh, and that the, the thinking itself lowers the mood further which triggers more reactivity, so more thinking comes in. And so we can see the sort of self-perpetuating nature of these cycles of depression. Uh, and this crucial insight that, that the degree of reactivity, the greater the degree of reactivity, the greater the vulnerability to depression. And so the whole aim, if you like, of, of MBCT, the really central aim in terms of seeking to prevent depressive relapse, being about reducing this reactivity, if you like, cultivating an equanimity with the unpleasantness of low mood, with the, with the difficulty of life, so that there's less reactivity. And we don't have to have suffered from depression to to know that it's in our places of greatest reactivity to pleasant and especially to unpleasant that we are most vulnerable to suffering. Now, this is the second noble truth that suffering is caused by this word tanha or craving, which, which we could also translate, I think, as reactivity. And so what we're practicing here on retreat, what we've been practicing, what we are practicing is, is being with the pleasant and the unpleasant in a different way. Really practicing being with these Vedana tones, these moment by moment experiences of pleasant, unpleasant and neither in a different way. So that we can be with the unpleasant without the automatic habit of trying to get rid of it. So that we can be with the pleasant 
without just absorbing unconsciously into this sort of addictive grasping and planning how I can get more of it. And, and in many ways, this practice is about bringing this equanimity to a wider and wider range of experience, of Vedana, if you like, without losing awareness, intention, integrity. So that we're able really just to say, you know, this too, this too, this too, whatever it is, moment by moment. And we can see that, you know, Christina's latest definition that we've talked about a lot, the sense of the willingness and capacity to be equally near all events and experiences with curiosity kindness and discernment there's such a profundity to that and it's really pointing to to equanimity as well isn't it the willingness to be equally near the unpleasantness of the painful knee of the difficult thought of the unpleasant experience you know during the yogi job or the the low mood as well as with the pleasantness, with the same curiosity, kindness and discernment. To be open to whatever life seems to be giving us, moment by moment. And in the midst of this, it's so helpful really to cultivate a greater steadiness of view. Because we can see that with all these winds blowing, our view our intention can get very blown around as well. Uh, and in a sense, just, you know, this is, the, this is part of the value of the Buddha setting out these teachings so clearly in the lists. And really, each, you know, each of us, whether we think of ourselves as, as Buddhists or not, but certainly, you know, all of us who are practicing and teaching mindfulness, really to have a sort of if you like, a a lifelong deepening um, exploration of the Four Noble Truths, which can be so steadying of the view. You know, this first noble truth that life inevitably involves dukkha, inevitably involves unsatisfactoriness. The second noble truth that this unsatisfactoriness, this dukkha, has an origin, has a cause in craving. Uh, and that, that it's the abandoning of that craving, the letting go of that craving, the relaxing of that reactivity that enables the third noble truth, those moments of experiencing the third noble truth, the, the, the new sense of freedom or release or ending of that craving and the ending of the dukkha in that moment. And yes, this, you know, this has a larger trajectory to it in terms of the possibility of the, the, the sort of complete dismantling of the me- mental mechanisms of reactivity, the uprooting of those habits. But we can experience this moment by moment in the moments where we let go of the reactivity and are able to be with the pleasant and the unpleasant with greater patience, with greater kindness, with greater awareness, 
with a certain sense of humor even, you know, that enables us to be less reactively, more equanimously with our experience. And so helpful just to really, in a sense, orient our intention that, that you know, maybe, maybe the path to happiness is not about getting lots of pleasant experience and getting rid of the unpleasant. And we can know that at lots of levels and not know it at others. Fine, you know. But what if we see this life as being about, you know, let's, let's play a game. What if see, seeing this life being about cultivating this equanimity, this ability to be with whatever experience comes in a way that is non-reactive, but is still connected to the heart, still connected to a sense of awareness. So this is really the, you know, the first of these three areas that I'd like to speak about, this sense of, of practicing equanimity in the midst of the challenges of our daily lives. And the second area is really the, the, the essential support that equanimity gives to kindness, to compassion, to the appreciative joy that is the third of these four Brahma-viharas, these sublime states that um, Brahma-viharas literally means the, the dwelling of the gods. And I love, I love Sharon Salzberg's translation of them as our best home, the best home for our mind. Kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And in some ways, equanimity can seem like a rather strange companion with those other three, which seem like more obviously sort of emotional states. But it's really, really crucial as, as a companion to them. Because we can see that without equanimity, each of those other states can distort into what's called its near enemy. We used that, that term earlier today, and some of you are very familiar with it. But the near enemy of these states are states that are very close to these states of kindness, compassion, and joy, but, but that mimic them, if you like. They're, they're, what, they're how those states get distorted when they encounter pleasant and unpleasant Vedana and lose their sense of balance. I haven't expressed that as clearly as I would have liked. Does that, does that make sense? You know, the sense of near enemies as being states that we can slip into. So like the near enemy of kindness being attachment. You know, where, where, where the kindness gets preferential, if you like, and, and I get attached to, to this person or this person being a certain way. Uh, and the, the far enemy is the sense of, of not, not wanting, you know, ill will, which sometimes kindness, when it becomes preferential, can flip into. If they start, start behaving in ways they don't like, you know, the unpleasantness of that, I can flip into being quite reactive around. Or, or compassion that can, can slip into its near enemies of pity, where there's a slight sense of, of me here and there, there, and I feel sorry for them. Or compassion can slip into a sense of despair where we just get weighed down by the heaviness of the sense of difficulty. Or, or joy that, that 
can slip into intoxication, you know, or can slip into envy when we see the good things that others have in their lives. And we can really see that it's, it's equanimity that helps to give the boundless or the potentially boundless quality to each of those states. It helps to give a sense of balance to them. So that when, in the midst of life, our kindness encounters things it doesn't like, as it will, yeah, we can be with them with more sense of balance and without losing that intention of goodwill, that intention of kindness. When our compassion is in the midst of really intense suffering. It can, it can stay compassionate without slipping into despair because there's a certain equanimity, a certain balance, a certain wisdom faculty, if you like, that, that enables it to stay upright in the middle of things. That our joy, we can really see the joys that others, others are having and, and rejoice with them. Feeling maybe if there's a pull into envy, but actually just letting the equanimity help bring us back into balance. D- does that make sense? Does that make sense? This balancing quality that equanimity can have. Because we can see just how easily the suffering of others, for instance, can trigger our reactivity. You know, we know that there's no suffering like seeing those we love suffer, is there? It's so, so easy for our sense of compassion to become reactive because of the difficulty of being with the pain of seeing those we love suffer. And so as a really necessary balance to our compassion, this tradition, as well as offering the, the practices of, of uh, loving kindness that we did this afternoon, or meta that we did yesterday afternoon and, the, and, and this afternoon, offers equanimity phrases as well. So ways of formally, if you like, developing our equanimity. And here are some. This is firstly the, the sort of traditional one. All beings are the owners of their actions. So these are phrases that one would say in a sequence of, of people, generally starting with a neutral person and working through the other categories like we did this afternoon. So all beings are the owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness comes from their past actions more than from my wishes for them. So just invite you, I'll just read some more of these or some some different versions of these, just to let these in and see how they resonate for you. No matter how I wish things to be otherwise, things are just as they are. I care for you, but I cannot control your happiness or unhappiness. I cannot keep you from suffering. May I accept things just as they are. This too will pass. And as, as we let those phrases resonate for us, you know, 
we can feel there's a certain coolness about them, isn't there? There's a certain coolness about them. And it's a coolness that supports compassion. Supports compassion. Supports responsiveness. You know, it's an equanimity that, that helps us to cultivate a resilience in the midst of difficulty, our own and that of others. We can see it sort of embodied in the, the image of Kuan Yin, so this beautiful uh, image of the female embodiment of compassion, bodhisattva of compassion, who in, in the tradition is seen as being as perfectly embodying compassion and perfectly embodying equanimity so as to be able to be in the midst of all the sounds of the world, the cries of the world, the cries of pain of the world, with perfect equanimity and perfect compassion that enables an appropriate response to that difficulty, to those difficulties. And, and in some of the images of the male form, Avalokiteshvara, he has a thousand hands and arms, each of which, each hand has uh, some gesture of compassion. Uh, and that's expressing how compassionate responses can take so many different forms. Uh, and that actually our skillfulness of response to suffering is profoundly enabled by our willingness to be with it with equanimity. So that instead of reacting to our own the discomfort of being with the suffering of others or ourselves, we can respond with more sense of balance and, and a clearer vision of what is appropriate in the circumstances. Thich Nhat Hanh calls this having a typical beautiful simplicity. He describes it as having a very cool head and a very warm heart. You know, and, and that somehow that's what life and what our encounters with suffering demand. So we can see that equanimity really is an essential support for these heart qualities of kindness, compassion and joy that, that are, are the essence of skillful relating. And we can see that these qualities are in turn essential to keep equanimity, to keep this coolness connected to the heart and to prevent it from slipping into its own near enemy, which is the near enemy of indifference. And, and if you get a sense, do you know how easily this can happen, that our equanimity slips into a certain detachment where we're no longer so really troubled by the joys and the suffering of others. 
And we can think that that's equanimity. And it's interesting how the Buddha uses the same word for this near enemy of indifference as for equanimity. So it's exactly the same word, upeka. You know, stands for the, the word equanimity and, or the quality of equanimity, and the quality of indifference, which I think is a sign of just how easy it is to slip from one to the other. How, how indifference can often masquerade as equanimity, so that I may appear authentically equanimous, and I may believe that my sort of coolness in the face of suffering is because I'm not attached to outcomes, or not attached to the joys and the sorrows of others. But when I look, I see actually, because of fear and aversion, I've detached. I've got the cool head, but I haven't got the warm heart. I've lost the warm heart. And um, there's, a, there's a, a Dharma teacher in, in, uh, in America called Donald Rothberg, who's written a, a wonderful book called The Engaged Spiritual Life. And Donald is a, is a, um, as well as being a very um, skillful and wise Dharma teacher, he's done a great deal of social activism uh, and social work for social justice. And he's very interested in what blocks us from taking action about issues that we know are important and, and that at times we care about. Uh, and he... he uh, he lists some of the, the other near enemies of equanimity, the other states that are different forms that indifference can take. Uh, and some of these he describes as privileged distance, denial, complacency, resignation, acquiescence, numbness, intellectual aloofness, rationalization, cynicism, and a fear of strong emotions, particularly anger. And he says these are near enemies of these near enemies of equanimity rest in Buddhist terms on aversion to and distancing from suffering on the one hand, and grasping after the pleasant qualities of equanimity on the other. Both in turn depend on an underlying ignorance. And I find that a chastening list. It's a challenging list, isn't it? You know. Uh, and some of us at the moment are reflecting quite a lot on, on climate change. And, you know, that sense that all the the world's most reputable and respected climate scientists are saying that the situation is very, very serious. And yet somehow human society doesn't seem to be coming up with an appropriate response. And I can notice when I look at my own responses how easy it is either to slip into despair or to slip into a certain sort of sense of privileged distance, I guess, because at the moment my home and livelihood haven't been threatened and destroyed in the way that those of millions of other people have. And I notice that neither despair nor that aloofness is actually a great motivator for action. You know? And that somehow, you know, really 
to come back into this middleness that equanimity points to of, of really caring, of, of keeping the cool head that can see clearly, but also keeping the sense of the, the, the warm heart that cares. And, you know, when one looks at the example of people like Aung San Suu Kyi in, in Burma or Thich Nhat Hanh during the Vietnam War or, or Maha Gosananda in Cambodia or His Holiness the Dalai Lama with Tibet, you really see these people of profound human concern and profound equanimity. And so, you know, again, just, just to, on this area of, of equanimity and how we slip into indifference, just again to ask you, you know, what's your equivalent? You know, what are the areas in your life where you feel this edge between equanimity and indifference, how easy it is to slide into indifference? There's a, there's a sort of balance pointed to in that, that line from T.S. Eliot, Teach us to care and not to care. You know, so, so that there's the real care, there's the real engagement, there's the real commitment to action. And there's the, the coolness that can be with things as they are. There's much more that I could say about that and I'm going to abbreviate a bit because of, of time. But the last of the areas that I'd like just to, to point to about in this, um, actually I just want to say, just come back on what I've just said, because I want to point out that that, that line, teaches to care and not to care, uh, when we're thinking about climate change and social justice, You know what, what we're asking ourselves is which have I tipped more in the direction of? How have I got out of balance? You know what are the relationships in my life where I've tipped more maybe into not caring or not acting for all sorts of very understandable reasons. Very understandable reasons. And that these teachings challenge us to really to find that place of both equanimity, great equanimity and great compassion and compassionate response. So, so yeah, just, just this last area of, of uh, our experience that, that uh, is so valuable to deepen our exploration of equanimity in is is the experience of or the arena of meditative practice, and I'd like just to read some lines from some famous lines from from the third Zen patriarch. If that doesn't sound too obscure, but he has really great lines on the the verses of the faith mind. He says, "The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences." <coughs> When craving and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, 
then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the basic disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Really challenging lines, aren't they? But they point just to the significance, as well at the macro level, also the micro level in our meditative practice of how we respond to the pleasant and unpleasant Vedana, of sensations, of thoughts, of moods. Because what we can see is that reactivity to experience builds it, compounds it, thickens it, solidifies it, builds what we've been calling the world of the moment, the more reactivity, the more experience seems to become solid. And the stronger the sense of self becomes, this, this process of selfing that we've been exploring. So big reactivity, big sense of self, big dukkha. Yeah. And that, that what we're, we're working with is this process in working with the Vedana, in working with equanimity, of relaxing the reactivity, of sensing the reaction to the unpleasant thought or the painful knee or the low mood or whatever is, is here, the, 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 you know, the unpleasant sound. And, and in that place, unlearning our reactivity, practicing Relaxing the reactivity in a way that the more we do it, and this is mysterious and very profound, as those, those lines from the, the, uh, the Zen patriarch point to, in a way that loosens and opens up experience, where the solidity of things can begin to fade. And there is the sense of, of, of our experience really beginning to open up. Become less obstructed. And you know, some of you I know are very familiar with this, this way of practice and this arena of practice. But really just to invite an exploration. What happens in those moments where you let go of the reactivity? You soften the reactivity to the... You know, the, the physical discomfort or the painful thought. Really to be interested in that. And, and, you know, one way of seeing mindfulness practice and these teachings and insight meditation is about, is as different lenses that offer us different ways of looking at our experience that help bring about release. Uh, and... You know, the, the, uh, the Buddha identified these three characteristics of experience. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. That can be ways of looking that we can practice. That help to soften and release the sense of reactivity. And 
You know, I know some of you have really been exploring on this retreat, for instance, the theme of impermanence. You know, and the more I can see that the unpleasant Vedana or, or the pleasant Vedana of an experience is something fleeting and changing. You know, so that even physical pain, when we really look at it through the lens of impermanence, we can start to see that it's not something fixed and solid, it's a changing process. And that can really help to, to, to release the reactivity that needs to push it away or needs to grasp after, you know, the taste of lunch, you know, or, or some other pleasant experience that we may have been solidifying by the sense of our craving. So impermanence, this, this highlights this sense that that experience is so so changeable and, and and fluid. Not even fluid. It's so evanescent in a certain way that 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 it can't satisfy us in the way that we think it can. This belief that actually somehow my happiness depends on amassing lots of pleasant experiences and getting rid of unpleasant. You know, the more we look with the lens of impermanence, the more we can see that, that experience can't satisfy in that way. That happiness doesn't come from that. And we can also see, begin to see the, the selflessness of experience. Because just like we said, you know, big reactivity, big sense of self, big dukkha, the less reactivity, the less there will be a sense of self and selfing. And the more the sense of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness begins to dissolve and soften. Uh, And, you know, again, this is a subject for a whole other talk or many, many talks in a sense. But, but the way in which this practice of relaxing reactivity that is integral to this practice is integral to the mindfulness-based applications, there's a profundity to it. Let's not lose sight of that. Because it really can begin to open up our experience and we can discover this, this, this deeper sense of, of middleness that, that is about that recognizes the vivid and dynamic nature of our, of our experience, but also its insubstantiality, its beautiful insubstantiality and selflessness, uh, and points towards the immense freedom in that. And so to conclude... This, this theme of equanimity invites us to reflect, you know, how am I going to practice being with what I'm given in this life? With what I'm given and what I'm not given. What relationship with the circumstances of my life, am I going to practice? 
And yes, this requires great patience and great compassion with our patterns of reactivity. We need to be to practice equanimity about our lack of equanimity. Yeah. And to investigate how reactivity entangles us in experiences, the micro and the macro. And that in many ways what this is about is really building the sense of resource that, you know, what this practice is about, as Christina was saying this afternoon, is building this sense of resource that enables us to turn towards our places of difficulty, our places of greatest reactivity, with mindfulness, with curiosity, kindness, discernment. Uh, and to practice equanimity and non-reactivity in those places, bringing them into the relationship, into the middleness of things. And in doing that, we may have this discovery that our happiness and freedom don't ultimately depend upon the circumstances of our lives but upon our relationship with those circumstances. And that it's possible for us to stand there in the middleness of our life as it is, with a heart that is deeply loving and deeply free. I'm just wondering whether to finish with a poem. Have you got stamina for a poem? Okay. It's a poem by that <clears throat> that wise poet, philosopher and farmer, Wendell Berry. It's called The Sycamore. In the place that is my own place, whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, there is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven into it, hacks and whittles cut in it, the lightning has burnt it. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death, though its living brims whitely at the lip of the darkness and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and bending 
of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents into its purpose. It has become the intention and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical and unassailable. In all the country, there is no other like it. I recognize in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater, that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it and is fed upon and is native and maker. Let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.